Bibles open uh, to that passage. We're looking at chapter 4, 13 to 18. And we'll need to have that open tonight. So, one question that nearly everybody, if you said you didn't have questions about this, I just wouldn't believe you, uh, is about what happens to us at death. What about the afterlife? Even Christians who are convinced about our, that we expect eternal life, salvation, when we die, we still at times ask about specific issues about the next life. This is true today, and we see it was true in the first century. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, Paul addressed some concerns, worries, that the new Christians in Thessalonica had about the last day and what would happen to Christians who had already died. So until now, until our passage here before us, Paul talked about things that the Thessalonians relatively already knew. He narrated in chapters 1 to 3 his need to know how the Thessalonians were enduring in faith. And then at the end of chapter 3, it shows that Timothy was sent to them and he returned with good news that they were persevering. And then in the first part of chapter 4 that we thought about the last two weeks, three, two times we were in this book, uh, Paul reminded them that God's will for our life is our sanctification. And he applied that, that principle in two issues of sexual morality and proper Christian social and work ethics. And then we come to our passage tonight. And in this passage, Paul transitioned to explain a new issue. Not a reminder of things they already knew. It's likely what's going on here is that Timothy returned to Paul with a list of issues troubling the Thessalonians. And so Paul replies to those issues, and this is the first one that he's taking on questions that they need answered. And so he first took on the question about the relationship between Christ's coming and believers' resurrection. So remember, think about all that you know about Christian doctrine. That when So remember that when Christ returns, he will bring the new creation. He will renew this entire world. And we will receive bodies, the resurrected, glorified body that are fit for the new creation. We receive resurrection, which our our bodies in that state will be incorruptible, indestructible. So we believe, as the Apostles' Creed says, in the resurrection of the body. And what we mean by that is that dead Christians will be restored to bodily life. So we are not, I mean, we do, when we die, we go to heaven and we don't have our bodies, but that's not the end point for Christians. We are not disembodied souls forever. We believe that God will give us back our bodies. And those Christians still alive to follow up and further that point, the Christians still alive when Jesus Christ returns will be transformed and will have that same type of incorruptible body as those who rise from the dead. So, this picture that I tried to paint for you about what Christians have believed for 2,000 years was maybe not as apparent and clear 
2,000 years ago when the New Testament was still being written. So people who were former pagans like the Thessalonians who likely thought beforehand that all physical matter, bodily things, was inherently evil, which in their mind would have made bodily resurrection as salvation totally foreign, they they tried to understand the full ramifications of Christian theology about the return of Christ. And it was giving them some trouble. It appears that they were really worried that Christians who had died would not get to share in that glorification of the body when Christ returns. So you can see sort of how that works out. We believe Christ's coming. He's going to transform our bodies. But some of our friends have died. What happens to them when Christ returns? And Paul takes that on. The main point that we're going to see here in our passage is that Paul intended the connection between the resurrection of the body and the return of Christ to be a pastoral comfort. So let me say that again. Paul intended the connection between the resurrection of the body and the return of Christ to be a pastoral comfort. So let me prove that really quickly and then we'll dive into our points. So if, if you look at verse 1, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve. So you see the pastoral intent there, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So his purpose there is to change the way that they grieve. Circle back in a second. And then jump to verse 18. He wrote, as an inference from this whole passage, everything he said here, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so we see that this passage has bookends, each end of it, statements of pastoral concern. He wants to make sure that this truth is a comfort for them. And so we're going to dig around in that issue for three points. The text, the trouble, and the timing. So, first, the text. Now, some of you uh, who like to watch for patterns probably usually, you know that I usually take one idea from the passage for each point and try to sort of highlight its importance for that point. Now, differently... What I want to do is work through basically this whole passage in order in this point. So we'll work through the material and then we'll think for the next two points about some application of the truths in this passage. And so we need to keep our Bibles right in front of us, especially for this point. Now, I already noted the, the bookends of this passage about its pastoral orientation. And we see in verse 13, again, Paul's desire to teach the Thessalonians about an important topic. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So what what I want to highlight here, we see that Paul set out to teach them about those who are asleep, a metaphor. Um in those days for people who had died. I think that this was apparently a common way to speak about death in the period, much like we might say something like passing away to be sensitive 
about saying that someone died. And so we shouldn't read too much into the fact that he says they're asleep. It's been done, and I think it's just a sensitive way to talk about death. Paul's purpose, though, as he said here, was that the readers may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And we need to really think about that. Crucially, Paul doesn't say here not to grieve. That's not his point. But not to grieve in a particular way. We must not grieve like people who do not have hope. Grief is not wrong in itself when someone you love dies, but we have to grieve in a way that people grieve when we have hope. We need a different way to grieve that keeps in mind that believers who die are in a better place than we are. And that, as Paul will explain, they expect the resurrection at Christ's return. And then in verse 14, we read, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Now, okay, so here's the thing. This verse provides the reason that we grieve differently. So, I've pointed out that we need to, and here's the reason why. It's seen in that little word for, it's, that's, that's saying because, and what we see here is that we grieve for believers who died with hope because we know that God will bring them back to life through Jesus. And so what Paul is doing here, he reasoned from the work of Christ to the blessing that we receive as those joined to him by faith. The, the first half of that verse, since we know Christ died and rose, that half of the verse guarantees the second half. That God, through or, or by the person of, by the work of Jesus Christ, he'll bring these people back from the grave. It's a guarantee for believers because Jesus himself died and rose. So there's, there's one other passing note about this verse that I hope's, hope is interesting to you and helpful. So there, there are two Greek verbs that mean resurrection. Now, there, there's nothing overly significant about that. We don't need to change anything, but... It's interesting because Paul used one of those verbs here that he used elsewhere only when he was quoting other material. And so that point, combined with that little introductory phrase we see there, we believe that, that tells us that Paul was likely drawing on some established phrasing, some material that was already being used in churches and that Christians were used to saying. And so if you ever wonder why we as preachers might quote the Westminster Confession or the catechisms to you or even the creeds of the church or why some churches even recite some of their important documents in worship, it is because of things like this, that Christians, even while the New Testament was being written, were composing creedal materials and documents that had some binding force for what we believe as the Christian community, subordinate to Scripture, but summarizing succinctly and hopefully powerfully what Scripture teaches that we can memorize and use. 
Now, let's move. I hope that was helpful. But let's move on to verses 15 to 17. And here, these verses underscore why we should be confident that those who die before Christ's return will participate fully in the fulfillment of our salvation upon Christ's return in receiving resurrection bodies. So read these with me. For this is why, for, for this, sorry, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, okay, so there's, there's a lot there. And I, I know that. And, but I think we can move simply through it if we sort of just take account of what Paul was saying, his logic. Paul called this section a, a word of the Lord meaning that he was summarizing the direct teaching of Jesus, which we read in Matthew 24. And so in this way, Paul appealed to the highest authority, Jesus' own words, in order to, to fill the Thessalonians with confidence about what he's explaining here. There's no higher court of appeal than the direct words of the Lord Jesus. And so remember the issue that's troubling the church was that they were worried about Christians who had died and that they would not share in the full blessing of the resurrection. And Paul assured them in that worry by flipping their concern upside down. Do you see that? So so not only will believers who have died take part in the resurrection, they're going to receive it first. Do Do you see how sort of turned their concern on its head there and that they shouldn't worry because it's not only that believers who've died will be blessed and receive the resurrection, they'll have it before you do if you're alive at the second coming. So that that broadly summarizes these verses and there's more to say there, but we'll circle back to it uh, in a later point. And so suffice it for now to say that verses 15 to 17 insist on a type of priority of blessing at Christ's return for Christians who have died. So a type of priority for Christians who have died. The, the text is an assertion of last day blessing for all believers, living or dead, That should be a pastoral encouragement for Christians. That brings us to our second point, the trouble. So we we considered so far Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians concerning the eternal fate, if I can use that word and trust that you know what I mean, of believers who die before the coming of Christ. What may have already struck you, here's the, is, and why I'm pausing and being more hesitant now, is how, I mean, this is obviously still a serious issue of pastoral concern 
among Christians. I mean, it's likely, I mean, I think it's beyond a shadow of a doubt almost that all of us to some capacity have lost relatives or friends and have been exposed to this sort of sadness to some degree. And our inclination is still to worry about some aspect of how those about whom we care are doing in the afterlife. So this is still a really raw issue. And it's live even amongst us. And and so this takes, obviously, real sensitivity. But that was actually Paul's intention in this passage. I mean, we cannot... I am so serious about this. We cannot turn these verses speculation about the end of the world. Because Paul's purpose here was to provide comfort. Words of hope for people who had doubts. So if we use these verses to create more doubt, you are defying the biblical point. And so we need to think about how this passage points all Christians to have comfort. So what principled comfort might we take from this passage that abides across the spectrum of questions from from our own context when we think about the resurrection and the return of Christ. And so that that principled comfort that'll be our starting place to work out from, that principled comfort is Christ's resurrection guaranteed and guarantees an equal salvation for every believer from all the ties of death. I mean, that might be worth repeating. Christ's resurrection guaranteed and guarantees an equal salvation for every believer from all the ties of death. And we have to cling to that point. And we need to think about why that principle, that principled comfort is relevant. So there are a few points here. So, first, I want to think about how I know that many Christians will struggle with the notion of assurance of salvation. The question of how they can know they are saved. And usually, not always, but usually that question for them hinges upon a threatening sense of our own sin. And and that's what's going on. When we feel crushed by that sense of our own sin, we might start to ask, what if I'm not good enough on the last day to go to heaven or enter the new creation, to put it more precisely? I, I think that most Christians at some point struggle with that question at some time in their faith. But look at verse 14. And the way that Paul comes at this issue of assurance. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this, but I wanna sort of hash it out too as I read it. So, for, or because, since we believe, so in light of the fact that we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, or therefore, 
through Jesus or by Jesus' last day work, God will bring with him, meaning Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So, so the first part of this verse says, as Christians, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, he takes that for granted since we believe that Jesus died and rose. So you believe, if you're a Christian, in the death and resurrection and resurrection of Christ. You remember he died and came back to life. And this is, in fact, what Paul called a matter of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15.3. That Jesus came back to life. And so the first premise is Christ is risen, risen and you know that. And from that, Paul indicated that since this death and resurrection was for us, then obviously we will all receive resurrection as well. So Paul does not point us... So when it comes to assurance, Paul does not point us into ourselves, but to the risen Christ. Although certainly, I mean certainly, and if you've been here for the last few sermons in this series, you know that I've harped on this, that certainly we strive after deeper holiness. That is not, though, where we find assurance. We don't find assurance of salvation in our efforts at deeper holiness. We are assured because the risen Christ, the living Son of God, has guaranteed by His own work that all of those who trust in Him will receive the fullness of salvation. That is the hinge point of assurance. So, I was actually reading early this morning. If you think about the illustration of a bridge, I got this from a book, um, and, and if you're thinking about how can I trust that this bridge will get me across to the other side, you actually don't step back from the bridge and start to think, well, I need to examine my own trust in the bridge and start to think about, well, how, how much am I trusting this bridge? How much have I done in regards to this bridge? No, what do you do? You go up and you look at the bridge and you think, does that look like it holds up? So when it comes to assurance, you don't have to spend ages speculating about your own faith. Look to Jesus. Look to the guy who gets you across the gap to God. Look at him. That's how we find assurance. And then the second point of of relevance or import from this text is that we find a, a new horizon of hope as we think about how we suffer in, in this age. So, so there, are, there's a lot of layers to that, though, aren't there? I mean, I I know that we we find suffering not only in the things that happen directly to us, but also in the things that happen to those about whom we care. So, our loved ones, things that go wrong for them, also cause suffering for us. And that should be the case of everyone in this room, that we weep together and we rejoice together. And the point here is that no matter... I mean, so if you zoned out, 
pull back in right now. Because the point here is that no matter how deeply the suffering of this age has reached into your life, it is not beyond the reach of Christ to repair. I mean, is there any further that we could imagine suffering reaching into our lives than than death taking our loved ones? And I know that I'm, I'm sort of stating that. I'm trying to stay away from saying passing away because I, I want to do justice to the stark suffering that death causes. We can't gloss over this as Christians. This is real. This is hard. And the odds are that we, thinking about death taking our loved ones, we worry more about even this than what happens to ourselves, I think for many of us, if not all of us. But we should find in this passage immense comfort as we think about our Christian loved ones. We know, we know that whatever befalls us, we will be reunited with any and all of those people we love at the last day who are believers in Christ. And that no matter what happened to us, whether we grew well into old age or horrible disease robbed us of time together on earth, we know that Christ will undo all of those things. And here's, I mean, so here's the big payoff. It's not only that Christ will reunite you. He will give you back your bodies everything that has fragmented your body that has made you suffer in your limbs in your physical matter Christ is going to give you back your body everything taken away that causes suffering in it and will make us incorruptible All the tyranny of this age wreaking havoc in our bodies, whether your bones, organs, brain, mental health, emotional well-being, all of that will be stripped away, disarmed, and overwritten by the resurrection that Christ will give to us. So the trouble... It's the present age and the worry that it causes. And more so that we lose sight of the future hope we have. And that brings us to our third point, the the timing. So in in the first point, we worked through how... This text was meant to encourage Christians worried about believers who had died to assure them that all believers will receive um, the fulfillment or the completion of our salvation at Christ's return. In, in, then in the second point, we reflected on some ways that this passage should turn away our fears. And now we need to look at a sort of specific theological point and how that gives us gospel hope. So 
yeah, I'm going to talk about something a little bit tricky here, but I think is widely enough known that it's worth talking about. And if you stick with me, know that we're coming back to why this really matters. So if you're sort of familiar with widely popular notions of Christ's return, you might know something about this movement called dispensationalism, which, and if you don't, I'm going to explain a bit about it. So it's a movement that has often tried to map out the events, specific events that lead up to the end of the world and, and pinpoint Christ's return. And they take this passage before us to describe what they call the rapture, which is an event that precedes the final return of Christ. But in this event, all the Christians who are, who are dead or alive will disappear from the earth. And, and so this is, this is sort of the premise of all, I think this may have been more popular in America, but the premise of all the left behind novels and the movies that depict people disappearing from airplanes and, and moving cars and, and things like that. So in most versions of this theology, think about our text. They latch on to verse 17, that phrase there that's caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And they say that this rapture precedes, hang on for the rest of the sentence, I know. (laughs) This rapture precedes seven years of tribulation on earth, followed by the actual return of Christ when he begins his thousand years of earthly reign before the devil gets released and wreaks havoc one more time. Now, if you didn't get all that, it's, it's totally all right because part of my point here is that that way of trying to read the Bible, this verse, it's actually too complicated to hold up to straightforward reading of, of texts like the one before us. So I sort of thought going into this, I knew these passages were here. I was, I was pretty excited to get to these. And, and I thought I was probably going to have to construct a really technical, you know, impenetrable argument to take this on and convince people. But I mean, I think actually when we get into this text and just read it, the text is so straightforward. That it's simple and we shouldn't make it more complicated. The, the part of, of what I just described that likely everybody or most people recognized from the dispensational outlook is the bit about Christ snatching people into the clouds. As I think that notion that Christians will suddenly disappear has become pretty popular, even sort of maybe the predominant perception by the world of what we think about. But that notion, of course, assumes... Now, here's here's where we really sort of get into the, the, what this text is teaching us. That way of thinking assumes that this rapture is not only sudden, which is true, but it's also secret. Unbelievers are left on earth trying to figure out what happened to all the Christians who seemingly disappeared for no reason. Uh, but Look at verses 16 and 17, because this is cool stuff. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now note the real point there. The real underscore this. If you, if you mark in your Bible, maybe you think I'm unspiritual for doing that, but underline this if you underline. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the point. That's the real point of this. Be assured, believers, we're together with Jesus Christ forever. But let's think about that. If this has to be a secret thing, Christ comes back with a cry, better, a shout. He comes back with the voice of an archangel. So so the shouts of a, a commanding officer in God's army. And he comes back with the sound of a trumpet. I, that's just not a quiet thing at all. So let me highlight a little bit of context here. Exodus 19.16 and Psalm 47.5 refer to God coming on the clouds. And then Isaiah, or Isaiah, however you prefer, 27, 13, and Zechariah 9.14 refer to God summoning, summoning His people at the last day by a trumpet. So, all this imagery, again, underscores the fact that, first, Christ is God. He is doing things that only God does. But, moreover, all of this makes perfectly clear that this is not a secret thing. There will be no questions about what is going on when this event happens. It will be loud And it will be obvious. The dead will come out of their graves. And after that, the believers still alive will be caught on to Christ's divine chariot of clouds to participate in the cleansing of the earth. Which is a noticeable event. And this means though, although this passage is primarily a comfort for believers... If, if you are not a Christian, this passage should be of deep concern. It, it will be, the things described here will be a time, an event of judgment. This event will not help or comfort you. And so I have to exhort you right now. Would you not turn to Christ? Christ, as we have seen here, as we have read, died, but died in our place to represent us because we are supposed to die for our sin. And He rose again to be the one who owns the resurrected state. It belongs to Him and He has the right to give it to you. And He will give it to His people. And so if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, now is the time. And would you do so so that this passage would turn from threat to comfort? Now, for the last importance of all this is that 
we can see that actually what we await now is not something secret, but public. But something specific. Not just, it's not just that it's a public noticeable thing. It's that it's the public and glorious return of Jesus. For us. There is, there's nothing to decode here. We don't have to unlatch it. We don't have to map things out. Just the plain message that Christ could come literally at any moment to resurrect and glorify His people. That's the point. We are not counting down to anything except the direct appearing of our Lord who will rescue us from everything that oppresses us here. The the timing of the resurrection when Christ returns is imminent. It could be any time before we get home tonight. That should give you hope to endure with confidence while we expect our Savior to come and rescue us. We do not have room or right Room or right to speculate about the future. But we do have a mandate to find comfort in the impending return of Jesus Christ. Who will free us from death and who will work, walk with us in the streets of the new creation. Let's pray.